Good morning. It's good to see you all and be with you. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I usually do a book with the preaching, and we'll continue to do such this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and meet me in Psalm chapter 73. That's where we'll be at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one, and the, the, the scripture's not going to be on the screen. So go ahead and raise your hand and keep your hand raised really high. And then one of the ushers will walk down your aisle or into the overflow and then hand you out a copy of the Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please go ahead and keep the one that we are handing out as our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and a knowledge of the Lord. Um, so we've been in this series in Psalms. We've been looking at um, several different Psalms we've been walking through for the summer. We have a few more weeks in Psalms, and we'll conclude um, ultimately in August. And then after that, we are actually starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which that's going to take the bulk of fall. And then when we get to... Uh, Advent time, Christmas time, we'll have an Advent series. And so that's where we're at uh, from now all the way to December. Um, I tell you that so you can know what's going on and also so you can be thinking about December and the middle of July. Like we're going to get through this. It's going it's, it's, it's to be all right. It's going to be just all right. And so here's what we have in this particular psalm. In this psalm, we have the writer that is talking and giving us wisdom about what do we do when there's theological and practical gaps in our experience. Here's what I mean. When what we, what we know to be true about God, what we read about in scriptures, is not congruent with our experience of what we see. Um, when what we see, we see God is good and, and we understand that he's faithful and so forth. And yet, when we look into the world and we go, is God really good with all the disaster and destruction and injustice, etc.? Um, what about this gap here from what I know about God and what I experience in my reality? Um, ultimately, where do we find a meeting place there? And so the psalmist here starts off by saying, God is good. And then he goes into this commentary of going, but I wasn't thinking that for a long time. In fact, I was watching the people around me who don't worship God. They seem like life was going good for them. Here I am worshiping God. Things are not going good for me. And then ultimately, I came into the presence of God through worship. And I began to discern their end and where they were going. And then he rests in that position of which we heard read. Like, who have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire. And ultimately, he doesn't find all his answers, but ultimately in worshiping God, he begins to be content with who he is and ultimately what God is doing. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you would, would you bow your heads and, and let's ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for the grace that's extended to us through your son, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. And your Holy Spirit convicts of sin. We ask that we do such this morning. Your Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. We ask that you would do that this morning. Your Holy Spirit illuminates the word in a way in which we can see, know, and trust and follow you, Lord. We ask that he would do that afresh. God, we pray for the many who are here, those who love you, trust you, those who do not know you, and those of us, Lord, who are absolutely rattled by the things in this world and our faith is rattled. That we would understand the foundation and the rock which is Christ and which we can find ourselves hidden in from now on to all eternity. So, Lord, we ask that you would get the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when, um, when my wife Holly and I, we first start dating, um, I did what any person does when they start dating. I start lying about stuff. And so <laughs> basically she, she was a hiker, and she was like, do you hike? I'm like, yeah, of course I hike, man. <laughs> we don't hike. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, so we start hiking Camelback Mountain. She's like, let's go up Camelback Mountain. And so um, to be honest with you, Camelback Mountain is not something I ever thought I really wanted to hike. To me, Camelback Mountain is something you look at. You go to a friend's house, you've got a baller backyard, you're like, look at that, man, you got a view of the mountain, that's dope. Like, that's what you're supposed to do with that. Never, no part of me was like, I want to hike up that, right? No. But I wanted Holly, and she was like, okay, we're going hiking. So we went hiking, and um, we got to close to the top, and she goes, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to we'll race. So my wife and I, then and now, are very competitive and very competitive towards each other. And there's no, like, oh, let her win. No, she's got to get better. 
And so, 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 so we, we're racing, and she goes the path. And I'm like, I'm going to go off the path. The guy who doesn't know how to hike is going to go off the path. The guy who shouldn't even be up here is going to go off the path. So I go off the path. Fast forward. I'm going to come back and tell you what happened. She sees me come around the corner, and she goes, this is going to sound weird, but you look white. Right? <laughs> now, before you, before you guys take that anywhere else, all right, um, I was breathing hard. And here's what happened. I went off, and I'm sprinting, and I went off the trail thinking I'm going to go. I mean, I'm, what am I thinking, right? And I fall off the mountain, right, slip, because there's no trail there. I fall. I catch myself. I'm hanging. This is like some cliffhanger type stuff, right? <laughs> and I look down, and, and, and if I fall, I'm not going to be here today, right? So I pull myself up, and I'm freaking out, hence why she saw my face looking the way it did. And, I mean, it was, it was all bad, all bad. I, I don't know if I, I mean, I've been up the mountain since then, but I t I'm telling you, I'm following everybody else in their path too because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to experience that again, literally. What was I doing up there is what I kept thinking. The, 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 the point in there is you've had that experience before, that experience where you almost hit somebody but you didn't, right? You guys have had that before? And how you, you were thankful that it didn't happen. In that moment, you're more, you're more thankful than ever of a car that's not in a car accident, right? Or we've all had that dream. You know that dream that you have that you're doing some stuff you know you're not supposed to be doing? And it's real to you? And you wake up and you realize it was a dream? You're like, whoo, man, am I glad that's a dream. Like, that, that feeling you have, like, man, I, oh, man, that, that could have been way worse. This is the, what the writer is talking about. He says um, what here, verse number one here, he says this. He starts off with the theme of all of 73. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He goes, he's good. He is gracious. He shows his wisdom. This is who God is. And he goes, he's, he's good ultimately, he says, this disclaimer, to those who are pure in heart. So when he says Israel, he's not just saying everybody who's uh, ethnically Israel. He's saying the people who trust him and follow him and obey his commands, who believe in him. Jesus picks this up in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you know, the pure heart, they're going to see God. He goes, truly God is good. And that's, that's the theme. But he goes, but here was my experience, verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He said, I had that experience where it almost was the end for me. And what he begins to talk about is what happened for him is that he began to witness the wickedness of people and how they were seemingly being blessed by it. Meanwhile, he's looking at the faithfulness of men and women. He's going, they're not getting it. The people who are disobeying God seem to get a lot of prosperity. And the people who are actually honoring God, bad things keep happening in their life. I don't get it. And so he says, there is this gap between theory of what I believe in God and then practice what I actually see what's going on. So, so, so if you're following, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure heart. However, this is my experience. The next uh, verses, verses 2 through 12, he begins to explain his experience here. So if you're with me in verse 3, it says this. For I was envious and I was arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of my, mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. I don't think he likes these people, right? <laughs> Can we get there? So 
one of the things I, I thought as a kid was one of the worst decisions that my parents made. Now, here's the thing. As a kid, you telling your parents have a bad decision is not usually good. And you realize that when you get older and you have kids because you realize your kids are going to grow up and say the same thing about you. So it's all bad. All right. So we moved from the inner city to the suburbs. Now, living in the inner city, we didn't know we lived in the inner city. Like, we just knew that people around us were like us. They had the same things we had. Um, it wasn't like, you know, I didn't have the insecurities of, like, material things. Everybody kind of had the same things. Um, and the things we didn't have, nobody else had, right? And so it wasn't, like, um, super embarrassing. So one of the hardest things for me was when I first moved to the suburbs, um, it was, like, free lunch, right? And so your parents make a certain income, you got free or reduced lunch. And they, they might as well put a sign on you, like, hey, I'm on free lunch, right? The way they used, the way they used to give you these, like, yellow tickets. It's like, what's that? Don't worry about it. Right? It's just, it's just hard for an eight-year-old, right? And, and I was looking at the people in my community and the things they had that we didn't have. And I was very insecure, right? Very insecure as a little eight, nine-year-old kid. And to me, they had the good life. And, then, and this is just one man's opinion. And the good life at that time, right, we're talking early 90s, was um, two-story house, uh, two- to three-car garage, swimming pool, basketball hoop, dog, astro van. Like, you had it, Right? <laughs> Like, it was like, dang, right? And my friends would come to me, and, you know, we lived in an apartment and whatnot, and we weren't poor. We just didn't have as much as they had. And so my friends would come to me, and sa- Sundays were a big day. Sundays were the day that, you know, you go out, you play pick up football, pick up basketball, just fun. You just run around all day. That's what everybody did. But my mom took us to church every Sunday. And for those of you guys who don't know, in the black church, church is not an hour and 20 minutes, right? <laughs> That's like just the beginning of the praise and prayer music. Like, that's just like, that's a few songs, right? And so my friends, and we drove about 45 minutes back into the city to go to church. My friends were like, hey, you're going to play football today. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I got church today. And I would say, you don't understand. Like, we go to Sunday school, and then from Sunday school, we go to regular church. And then from regular church, we hang out and have like a potluck. And then somebody else's church is having a church service in the evening that we're going to go to. Or we're going to go to my grandma's house who lives around the street, around the corner from the church. And at my grandma's house, they're going to talk about church or even the people at church, right? And when we, when we go and do that, 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 that's just the experience. And they would say, what about after church? I'm like, I don't think you understand. That's Monday. <laughs> like, they're... There's no after church. There's, there's no after church, right? And, and, and then, so these people that my friends that I knew, I'd see their parents, and they'd have all these, like, in my opinion, nice cars, nice houses. They didn't go to church. Like, they weren't believing in God. And I'm saying, here we are, going to church, praising God, singing songs. We go a long time trying to do exactly what God called my mom to do. And I see people over here, and they're not, they're not doing all these things. And, you know, we'd go to church, and the pastor would say things like, praises go up. The blessings come down. And I'm like, the praises is going up, man. Something's stuck, right? Like so, something needs to happen. And then my friends, it seems like there no praises was going up. And it was like blessing, 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 blessing. Because I looked at those material things as blessings. And it bothered me. It really did. It, it bothered me even as an 8, 9, 10. And especially when I got in my teenage years, it just, it just didn't make sense to me. I never said, okay, there is no God. I never got away from that. But it, it, just, it just seemed like there was a gap. Now, that may not be yours. Yours may be more intellectual. It may be something that you, you perceive or you know to be true about this world, and it seems to be inconsistent with what you know to be true about God. Maybe it's injustice or suffering. That you say, how, how could we believe in a God that allows these sufferings and these things to happen and people to suffer, innocent people in, in, in unjust ways, that there's a gap between the theory and the practice? Well, the psalmist is there, and he's sitting back and he's going, there's people. 
and the way that they act, the things that they're doing are radically inconsistent with what God says, and yet it seems like they're being blessed. But let's go back again to what he says. Verse 4, he says, they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. What he's communicating there is life continues to go well for them. They're fat and sleek, meaning they have plenty, while we don't have much. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence is their garden. He said, listen, that nothing's bad is happening to them. Now, is, he, is his observation probably a little bit biased? Probably. But he's saying things seem to be going well for them, yet it's not going well for the faithful. They are getting money. We are not. Right? He, he, he continues, verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice, lawfully they threaten oppression. He's saying they're telling lies. And the oppression that they're talking about is in this day and time, what the, what the wicked rich were doing is that they were actually making money off the back of those who were poor. They were setting up institutions and, 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 and um their market, ultimately, the way that they were making money was they were skimming off the top. Like, this was something that was unjust, and yet nobody was blowing the whistle. Nobody was throwing the flag. And they're going, God, if you say these are your people, this is your world, and you hate these things, then why do you continue to allow these things? In some ways, by God silently not acting, it seems like he applauds it. Like, what, what, what's, what's going on? And so he's upset. Well, he continues here in verses uh, 10 through 12, he says, therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He's saying there's actually people now who were believing in God, but because of circumstances and and God not answering prayers um, in the way that they would like, they're looking over here and they're going, this is pretty tempting. Like the psalmist says, I, I was arrogant, I was bitter, I was envious, and there, there's, there's a part of me that wants to go over here. Now listen, there's not a man or a woman in this room who's a follower of God right now who has not been there. Some of you, you already got one foot over there already. And you're trying to hold on to the reality of who God is and faith in who God is, and yet you're looking on the other side going, it just seems like this life might be best, it might be better. I mean, think of it this way, if I could just kind of go through the progression of our, of our church, right? What these guys are saying is, they're saying, like, who, like, does God even know we're doing? Does he even care? Clearly he doesn't. Look, we're getting away with it. They're, like, mocking him. And, and here's how we, we will find ourselves here. Um, some of us will find ourselves here going, listen, I've read the scriptures. And I see what the scriptures say about sexual purity and sexual ethics. And you know what? I've actually honored that. And I've been waiting on that man of God or that woman of God to show up in my life that's consistent with what I believe. You know what? It hasn't happened yet. And I've been praying, and I've been faithful, and I've been on my knees asking God. And you know what? I see my friends over here, and they don't care about that. And their life is seemingly great. They go from one person to the next, and it doesn't seem like it's super bad, and they seem like they be ha- they're having a good time. Meanwhile, over here, even when I fail in my sexual ethics, I deal with guilt, and I deal with shame, and I'm trying to walk through that. I understand God's grace for it. And yet, they to them, that's Friday night. And if they're lucky, Saturday night, depending on what lucky means. I'm not even going there, right? <laughs> so so you, 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 have, you have this picture of going, wait a minute, okay, you, you get a little older. And you go, wait, wait, no, nah, all right. Maybe you get to that point, I, I found my man, I found my woman. But you know what? We've been trying to have kids. 
We've been trying to have babies. The Lord and his word says that children are a blessing and we've been trying to have kids. And you know what? I, I know all these people out there in the world, they're just sleeping around getting pregnant and getting abortions. And I don't understand. They're sinning against God. God's given them the gift of a, of a baby. Here we are doing things the way that God wants us to do it. And yet we have nothing. We spent money and money. We prayed and our community has prayed. I don't get it. There's bitterness that comes Maybe you get even older and you look at your kids as your kids get older. We did everything. We read, we read the Proverbs. It said, train a child in the way that he should go, and when he gets older, he shall not depart. We had that boy in church from 8 a.m. to after church church. It was grandma's house, right? <laughs> right? We, we, we had them in church, and now they're walking. I don't get it. When it me and our other friends, they were taking vacations. They had their kids in soccer clubs. They were not even in church, and here their kids are walking. I don't get it. And whatever it may be. Whatever the circumstance, why did I lose this person? Why does this hurt so bad? All the questions that you and I have, this ain't like people like, oh, these are my friend's questions. You know, not somebody always has a friend who has a question that you're like, huh, that's interesting. Because if I were you, I'd probably be asking the same question for my friends, right? <laughs> these are all questions that we have. We have these questions, and there is a gap. And we have to be honest. You don't have to fake your faith. Hey, I have a gap. <laughs> And I believe these things about God, and yet I, I, I see this as a reality. And the psalmist has given us wisdom into insight of going, this is what it was like for him, a, a lead worshiper of God. And then he says this, all in vain, verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. And here's what he says. He goes, all in vain. He goes, if this is my experience, why repent? Why turn to God? Why even show up on a Sunday? Why? Be, why? Because we see what happens for those who don't. Like, why would I even, why, why put up with this? Why, why faith in this God? And he goes, all day long, every morning, I'm thinking of this. And he says, if I would have spoke about this, this internal wrestle I had, I would have betrayed a generation. He starts to now lean towards the wisdom. And, and what he's leaning towards is this. There are sometimes there's internal wrestles that we have that we should not ever keep internal. That there's got to be a faithful, trusted few, men and women in our life, that we can go to. But when he says, I would have betrayed a generation of your children, if you're just talking out loud, there will be people, to anybody and everybody, there will be people inevitably who will be actually because of your your issues uh, turned away. And what I mean by that is not everything that you have internally needs to be shared with everybody. That once the Lord restores you and puts you in a place where now your faith is even strengthened because of, because of the doubts that you have, that there's moments where if you've just kind of given it to everybody, there will be people who are there who heard your wrestle and your thoughts who were, were, were all over the place who go, oh, that's right, God's not good, I'm gone. Meanwhile, you're saying, no, God is really good. You're, you're concluding where the psalmist concludes. And they're going, no, you told me a while ago. They're going, he's saying, listen, there's a wisdom there going, if I would have just thrown all of this out there at that time, I would have betrayed a lot of people because I was not actually ac accurately pointing them to the true God. So, so, so how does he get there? And how do we get there? Like, how does this, this gap between theory and practice, how does, this, how does this find itself reconciled? Well, here's what he says in verse 17. Until. Until, meaning he says, latter part of verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task. But until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Now, here's, what he, here's the sanctuary. And we, we touched on this last week. 
The sanctuary throughout scriptures, uh, primarily beginning in Exodus, was uh, a temporary space and then a permanent space, permanent space of the people of God. Temporary when they were moving around uh, throughout the wilderness before they landed in, in the land of Canaan in Jerusalem. And the, the, the tent and the tabernacle was a space in which God dwelt with his people. Now what we know from the New Testament writer, writer of Hebrews is it was a copy of the heavenly reality. It was to show a space in which God would meet with his people. It was a place of worship. It was a place of God revealing himself. It was a place where they gave themselves to God. It was a place where sacrifices would be because they would confess sin. The closest thing we have to that is when we gather as a body. It's the reason why we have songs and praises and hymns of adoration. It's the reason why we confess sin and that we have songs to remind us and scriptures that remind us that assure us of God's grace. And there's instruction of God's teaching that we have every week that reveal who God is. There's the practice of remembering God through, through uh, bread and wine of the communion which Jesus has given us. These things are all liturgical things of which the people of God um, from throughout scriptures have gathered together so that God may reveal himself in the context of not just the individual but one another's. So he says, when I came into the sanctuary, he says, and I began to see God, it was, it was now ultimately where reason, like, kept me here, revelation took me here. Here's what I mean by that. All of us who grew up in this country, and if you grew up in any Western country, that we have been taught a certain way how to discern and understand truth or facts. And usually it's been shaped by what is known as the Enlightenment. And usually that means if we found out truth or facts through something that's called the scientific method. And the scientific method is something that was a very, very good gift that we can learn and understand things and take th things apart. And then we can go, okay, is this true or if this is, is this fact or this is value is the way we're taught. And then, so you think something like this. One plus one equals two. Okay, there's a statement. And we put it through the scientific method. And then we can say this item, this item, two, become, all right, there we go. One plus one equals two. It's fact, and it stays over here. But if we say something like God is good, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, now you take that and you, and you try to put that fully empirically, even though you can take all the historical data, you can take all the things that people said about this man who said he was God, said he was the son of God, did what people thought were miracles, there were eyewitnesses, the resurrection. You can take all of the empirical and, and factual things and the data and ultimately put it through the scientific method. However, it doesn't come up on the other side, so therefore we don't look at it as fact for everybody to be universal truth, but we look at it as value, which should be true for you. And if it works for you, that's good. And that's the way it's taught. However... Um, when it comes to Christianity, we're not trying to find a scientific method to show us and reveal to us who God is. That's not that Christianity and science are incompatible. They're not. They're actually more congruent than we would imagine. Science gives us the beauty to be able to understand what God has created in his creation. Science, as the Bible says, can even show us things about in creation that reveal the attributes of God. But where science stops, ultimately God has to reveal himself and men and women have to believe in God. There is faith. The faith in which we have by no means is a blind faith. It's a faith that is historical and it's built on the reality of what God has said and what God has done. But ultimately we have to believe him. And when we believe him, it's not that God just gets rid of our circumstances, but we learn how to live in the tension of who God is and what he's like, even when our experience are different. Or even when our experience is saying, I don't see his justice fully, but I know that he will. I don't see all of his goodness in this moment, but I know that he is. And it's not willy-lilly blind just walking into something. It's going, here's how I've seen him to be faithful. Here's how I've seen him to be good. Here's what scriptures revealed. And we see the ultimate point of worship in the sanctuary. We see the ultimate means of worship and knowing God and understanding and discerning his will is on the cross of his son Jesus.
Because we see someone on the cross, God himself, who is truly innocent, who experiences injustice of this world, who's nailed to the cross in order that our sins may be forgiven, and then we see God's full act of justice through the resurrection. That when God raises his son from the dead, he gives the exclamation point. And the beauty and the power of that is that begins to leak in into our world now. So though the gap is still there, God by his spirit and his presence begins to bring that gap closer together of theory and practice of who he is, what he's done, and then our experience now that we will find it's ultimately a man through not only the resurrection but the return of Christ. And all who follow him begin to trust in him as they discern through worship, through revelation, through trusting, through faith, and following God, and not letting our feelings dictate our faith, but letting our faith ultimately not overshadow, but reconcile and navigate our feelings and our experiences. Amen? It's worship. It's worship. It's, it's, it's giving ourselves to God. It's, 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 it's saying, Lord, I'm trusting in your character. It's giving ourselves to him. And the, the psalmist doesn't have anything. He doesn't say, and there was this book that was written by R.C. Sproul, and then the Lord gave it to me. Right? No, no, it was this case for Christ, and this dude gave this to me, right? Lee Strobel came through back in the time. No, no, no. He said it was worship. I walked myself into the presence of God, and I be- God began to show me some things. The la- that, that's a, the, the transition of his, his writings now began to change. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them f- fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despite you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and I was I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continuing with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Would you look at verse 18 when he said, or the latter part of verse 17 when he says, I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. What he's saying is, when I begin to see God, I begin to realize God is a God who judges. And he is a God who brings about justice. The wickedness and rebellion and turning from God will ultimately be dealt with, even though it may not be dealt with in the way that I want it to or in the rapid pace. The scriptures let us know that we are not God. His ways are not our ways and our ways are not his. But ultimately, though he is slow to anger, his anger is only slow because it's meant for people like that and people like us to return and repent and trust in him. But when he says, I discern their end, it's less about what's going to happen to them and more about who God is. And those of you guys who read a lot and read a lot of novels, you know that when you understand the end, it's a lot easier to understand the plot. And you understand where he's going. And he's going, okay, that, that, that path is the path that ultimately you will fall. And ultimately, they have an end. And he began to look back at himself and going, what, what was I thinking? I was like a beast towards God. I shook my fist at God. I turned my back against God. I was no different than they were. That I find myself going, I don't do those things, I don't do those things, and yet I still wasn't wanting God for who he is. I wanted God to supply for me. I wanted God to do something for me. I wanted God to rain down the blessings that I wanted for me. I didn't really want God. My pleasure wasn't in God. And he came and says, now that I'm on my knees on my face and I'm with the people of God and I'm, I'm experiencing the revelation of God and knowing who he is in truth and character and purpose and what he's doing, he says, who have I in heaven but you, O oh Lord? Meaning heaven, Lord, is not ultimately what I want. It's you. 
One, one writer said it this way, if we got to heaven and we got to heaven and there was the most beautiful music that was played by, by the most beautiful uh, writers or artists that you would want. And, and if we got there, everything tastes better, the food tastes good and there was good food and there was good drink, um, non-alcoholic drink in heaven, right? And, and everything was beautiful and all your friends were there and it was just, it was a blast. But Jesus wasn't there. Would you still want heaven? And he's making that point to not make an unnecessary divide between what's secular and what's sacred. But he's saying ultimately it's God. It's Christ in whom we want. It's Christ in whom we long to see. It is a pure in heart that Jesus says their reward is that they get to see God. Because they trusted him. He says, who have I in heaven but you? Meaning, after this life, Lord, it is you that I get. And then he said, there's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. He's not saying that other things are not good. He's not saying that family and relationships and marriage and kids and singleness and church, all these things. He said he's not saying those things aren't good. He's not, not trying to make an unnecessary divide. He's just saying what is supreme and what makes those things even better is that I have God. It's a simple, tried, true and true faith of the follower of God for all, all of eternity. And that is Jesus is enough. Is that God is enough. He didn't say all of a sudden God gave me the things. He gave me the material blessings. The prosperity came to me. He says, you know what? I realized everything that I had, everything that I really, really needed, I already had in God. That God always offers more because he offers himself and he offers himself freely. And he offers himself in a gracious way in which we can experience. If you look at verse 23, it was the grace that carried him. He said, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Some of us who are wavering in our faith deeply. And if you haven't been there, when you get there and you waver in your faith deeply, you find yourself ignorant, arrogant, or boldly in, in sin. That if you are a child of God, he's the one who carries you. And he's the one that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the one who the writer says, I, I acknowledged I was gone. I was lost. But nevertheless, I'm continuing with you. Why? Because he loves you. And because you are his. Don't hear the wicked and the faithful. The wicked do bad things and the faithful do good things. No, no, no. The difference between the wicked and the faithful is that of grace. God given himself and us being able to receive it. It's being able to trust and rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. At any moment, any of us in this room, Christian or not, will do things that are wicked. But ultimately, the moment in which we need is the moment in which we meet and know and trust and know that God has given himself for us in Christ Jesus, that we may rest in him. That our life with him is tethered. And the string that tethers us is none other than the strong bind of the blood of Jesus, which always speaks a better word. The, the, the psalmist gets there. And, and he understands that it's only God. And he understands everything else that he looks to to satisfy. Everything he looks to to cure. Everything he looks to as the good life will fail. Verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He says, he's the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Verse 27, behold, those who are far from you shall perish. And you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Here's what he's saying. They're, they're, they're the people who ultimately are going down the path that are avoid, uh, avoiding God or rejecting God, that they're in and their judgment is death. And the reason why it's death is because they separated themselves from the lifeline who is Jesus Christ. And the way that we have life now and all eternity is by constantly being one with him in right relationship with him. 
This is somewhat of a warning to go, people who have turned their back and consistently turned their back and go in their own ways and look to their own thoughts and look to their own laws, ultimately apart from God, is that ultimately what happens is it's death and death and death until there's eternal death. But the true grace of God is this, verse 27, for behold, you are far, um, those who are far from you shall perish and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near the Lord and near God. And not just from him, but for all of us. That word near is exactly what you think it means. It means to be as close to him as possible. To be close to his word as possible. To obey his word as best by his strength, by his spirit as possible. But for me, it is, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of his works. When he says he's made the Lord his refuge, what he's saying is I am hidden in the center of God's presence. I am not perfect and my thoughts are not always good. My actions are not always consistent with him. My doubts are probably bigger than the most, but I find myself resting in the character of God who carries me, who leads me, who guides me, and who is my refuge, meaning he's the one who protects even through hard times, even through trials and tribulations, in singleness or in marriage, in plenty or in want. God is God, and he's the one who's given himself to me. So now in response, we give ourselves to him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that on the other side of eternity, on the other side of death, that you're there and that you catch us. The temptation, Lord, will call us, cause us to waver. Circumstances and situations in this life will call us to doubt. But, Lord, only by your spirit would you cause us to believe. And only by your grace would you continue to believe. And only by the strength and the love of your Father that we will be carried into eternity with you. So, God, I pray that you would hold our doubts, all the questions that we have, Lord, that we would bring them to you that you would provide faithful men and women to come alongside us, but more than anything, Lord, that we would worship God and we would give ourselves to you, Lord. God, that we would not necessarily just have to see certain signs, Lord, to believe and that you would empirically prove yourself, but we would take all the empirical evidence that's already there, all the things that we read in history, all the things about your son Jesus, all that he's done, all the things that we see in Scripture, and ultimately your spirit would apply them to our lives and we would say amen to you, Lord, and we would give ourselves to you because you have given yourself freely and wholly to us and you have not withheld anything. Help us to discern the end of a lifeless life apart from you in this life and all eternity or a very hopeful, full, whole life with you in this life and all of eternity. Jesus, we thank you for the offer and the gift of salvation. We thank you for the wisdom of your word. And we thank you for the love of your Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.